Hey there, it's Ozzy here again, and um, this is part three of my interview with Tony Rush. Now, you may have already heard the interview with Tony. Um, It was podcast number 100, which I recorded about a week ago. But I've had some feedback asking me, because it was a little bit long, it's an hour and 20 minutes, packed full of value from Tony. Absolutely awesome podcast, but I've had a little bit of feedback saying, could I make it into slightly more digestible chunks because people listen to it on the way to work or over breakfast or whatever and they don't have an hour and 20 minutes all in one go to listen to it so that's exactly what i've done i've already uploaded parts one and two this is part three i've broken it up into four 20 minute episodes so um here's part three and you'll hear me continuing my conversation with tony just the other side of this music safe house way of doing things as well isn't it you know it's you yeah. know it's it's let's we can we we can get inco- uncomfortable for a little while but you know we can still bolt back into this safety of your previous beliefs if you need to you know and i think i think maybe too maybe i've maybe i, I started onto that a little too early because maybe we should back up mm. and acknowledge that um well this was true for me i didn't know that you could change beliefs mm. now and as soon as I say that, I realize, well, duh. But here's the thing: like everybody, everybody believes that their belief about something is true. Mm. Well, if it's true, why would you change it? Yeah. So I think there's a distinction between is something true, is something um, workable. Mm-hmm. Is it usable? Is it um, serviceable? Meaning I've got an idea. Say, and I'll give you, let's use this as an example. So when I was growing up, coming from the background that I described a few minutes ago, I had a few beliefs about um, becoming wealthy. And it was based on my worldview from living in a small farming village in North Carolina, going to a small school, uh, going to a, a small Methodist church and just the the environment that I was in every day. And here's what I knew about being wealthy, Ozzy. I knew that in order to be wealthy, you had to have a college degree. Yeah. Um, I knew that you had to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I knew that you had to work really hard, whatever that meant, like long hours or physically, like success comes from, uh, hard work. And, um, and then I had some, some other beliefs that kind of orbited around those. I believed that, um, you had to be, a uh, being wealthy. Uh, if you were a good person, you'd be wealthy. Um, I believed, um, if you know what you want, that's a big one. If you know what you want, you know, that's, that's, that's the main thing mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. Uh, or the other one that's popular right now is you need to find your passion. That's, that's a big <laughs> yeah. one. Find your passion yeah. and that's how you become successful. So early on, you know, when I've got kids laughing at me at school because my jeans are too short and I realize, Oh, 
there are haves and have nots and I'm not in the right group. Well, my little brain went to work trying to figure out how I was going to become a have mm. instead of a have not. Except I knew that um, you had to have a college degree, you had to be a doctor or a lawyer, and you had to work really, really hard. And I knew that I could work really, really hard, but I also knew that I did not have a college degree, and I also knew that I was not a doctor or a lawyer. So at 21 years old, I'm working, you know, as a general laborer for the local city, the local, you know, uh -huh. municipal apartment, um, you know, sucking up, got that machine that sucks up wet leaves out of the ditches oh, yeah, in the wintertime yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, mowing the cemeteries in the summertime. And see, those were examples of, I had beliefs that wouldn't allow me to see a way to become wealthy. I wasn't even looking because what's the, what's the point in looking? Yeah. No. I already know I have to have a college degree and I already know that I have to, at that point, my belief had evolved to, um, you had to be, uh, at least a professional, like you didn't have to be a doctor or a lawyer, but you still had to be like an accountant or somebody that made your living with an ink pen instead of a shovel, you know? Sure. So anyway, so I said all that just to kind of set the context. These were beliefs. Yes. Yes. And so suddenly I encounter a guy who I'm, you know, regaling him with these stories of struggle and how my life's not working and I can't pay my bills and my car's about to get repossessed and nothing's working. And he looks at me and he says, so maybe you ought to, you know, maybe you ought to do some personal development and find out what you're doing to make your life that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> I said, what, what, what are you saying? What are you, are you saying I'm a, a bad person? What are you, what are you, he's like, no, you mean this is you my gotta, fault. <laughs> yeah. Like what are you, what, this is, this is the economy. This is yeah. the, uh, the, the Republicans mm. and the Democrats. Yeah. And, you know, mm. so, um, when I got clear of that and I realized that, um, my life's not happening to me, I'm happening to my yeah. life. And that was the opportunity. That's all I had to see. If I could get there, then I was totally fine to like pull out my little set of beliefs and I would pick them up one figuratively. I would pick one up and I'd say, where did I get this belief? Mm. Why do I, what made me think this? And I would, I would look at a belief like, like say, um, you, you have to be, uh, you have to have a college degree to be wealthy. And I would say, I don't know where this belief came from, but I can look around and I can find lots of evidence that it's not true. Because here's uh, Steve Jobs or yeah. Bill Gates or um, Jeff Schwartz was a uh, a guy in my city who was a famously uh, college dropout who was a local millionaire. And on and on and on, I could find lots of evidence that this belief's not true. And just like that, it was like blowing a dandelion. And I could just let these things go, these misshapen convoluted, warped ideas about how things had to be. I could just let it go. And all of a sudden I realized I don't have to have a college degree to be wealthy. And then I let go of the idea that I had to be a doctor or a lawyer. And, um, I even, I let go of the idea that I had to work hard or that I had to be highly educated, um, that you have to know the right people or that I had to, 
find this mythical passion. Like there's only one passion. You got to spend your whole life trying to find what's your passion. Um, I was, you know, I mean, I've done things that I'm very passionate about. I also sold weight loss products when I weighed 165 pounds. I didn't know anything <laughs> about weight loss, need it. And I made a lot of money. So, um, I, I guess my point there is that, uh, just to backtrack a tiny bit, we, all of our forward progress comes from changing our mind about what we think we know. Uh-huh. So that's, in my case, it was letting go of some beliefs that weren't serving me. And then, um, and then the, the other thing that I mentioned that anytime we're looking at what's not serving us, it's always helpful to know that we can take what we think we know, put it in a box. It's safe. It's there. Let's explore. Let's look, let's try some things on, see what's working, see what's not. And uh, it doesn't cost anything to, to do that. I sort of jokingly said, you know, it's my fault and, and I can look back. I, I could be the poster child for stupid at some of the things that I've done in my in my time looking back. And looking back, I know where problems have arisen. It's because of decisions I've made. It's not because of anybody else. I, I've done some crazy things in my time. Not bad things, but made poor decisions. And it's with the benefit of hindsight that I can look back now. And if you like, take a a more scientific, dispassionate view of of those beliefs then and say, well, why did I decide that? Well, it's because I believed this to be true at the time. It had never occurred to me that I could do anything other than just go and get a job. Never occurred to me that that was what, that, that was, what was in store for me. Uh, I knew I needed an income, but that's different as... You know only too well, Tony. That's different from having a job, getting an income. Oh yeah. Um, but decisions I made include: I was living at home till I was twenty in the Midlands. Uh, I was working in Nottingham. You'll have heard of Nottingham, Robin Hood, and all that sort of stuff. I was working in Nottingham. I was in what we call the civil service. You'd probably call it working in government over there, but working in the civil service over here. Very lowly paid. I was struggling to make ends meet at home. I then decided, because a friend of mine was at university at the time, at college in London, I'd visited him on a weekend, saw he was having a ball, didn't think that he's having a ball because he's a student. He's got lots of time to go to parties and all that sort of stuff. And in those days, they got a grant. And I thought, I'd like to go and live in London, which I think at the time was probably the most expensive city in the world. Mm. And I moved to London at 20. Oh, wow. And... I was struggling to make ends meet at home. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that was a crazy thing to do. And I still have, I still have somewhere, it's up in the attic somewhere, a letter from my bank. And in those days, banks were even less forgiving than they are now. And I still have this letter. Dear Mr. Eyre, we notice with some concern your account <laughs> is £7 overdrawn. Please adjust. And that was it. That was the sum total that I can quote oh the letter my to the world. And that I can so, remember. I can that remember. That sounds so British to me. Oh man, I That's can remember wonderful. my heart falling through the floor when I got this letter. Well, you know, I've got you know coppers in my pocket, you know, pennies in my pocket. What am I going to eat for the rest of the month? So I remember sheepishly phoning home and getting a five cent in the post and all that sort of stuff. Oh, you got to tell me though. Hold on, you got to go back and tell me what was the what was the language again? We we have noticed. We we note with some concern your account <laughs> is seven pounds overdrawn. Please adjust. 
Oh my gosh, that's just the best. Hold on, let me get. I'm gonna get a sip of Earl Grey tea here. I got my tea here. I got to get a sip of Earl Grey while you say that. That's just wonderful. I love that. Okay, continue. Yeah. yeah. So, so then I I was still in the civil service. I'd moved down with the the civil service, and again, this is where an alarm bell should have rung. In those days, it was possible to move to London with the civil service, but impossible to transfer out because they'd got such a shortage of people to work in the civil service in London. They were, they, they were crying out for people. So you could move in with, with the organisation, but you could not transfer out. That should have told me nobody wants to work in London in the civil service because they can't afford... But no, 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 no. So I then drifted into retail. And the way I drifted into retail is that because at the time I was working in the civil service, I was working in a job centre, which is where people who are unemployed go to find work. I was working in a job centre, and this this job came in for a large retail organisation. It would be unfair to, to name them. came in for this large retail organisation, and it was for a trainee supervisor. So the very lowest, 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 lowest rung on the managerial scale. And it was paying £300 a year more than I was currently getting. £300 a year. Not a month, a year. And I went and I got that job just because it was paying £300 a year. And that was the job I hated. I knew within 10 minutes of walking in the place I hated it. And I was there for 12 years and I allowed fear to keep me there. But um, but as I say, I can, I can look back at, at those now with uh, those decisions that I took with a more dispassionate, still get angry about it, but a, a more dispassionate scientific view and say, right, OK, this is why you messed up there. This is why you messed right. up there. This is why you messed up there. Because you, your beliefs were in the wrong, the wrong place entirely. But I mean, I, you said something there. You managed to shed yourself of the belief that you needed to work hard. Uh, was it Jim Rohn that said you, something like you work harder on yourself than you do on your business? Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um there's a guy named, and I'm going to think of, I'll pull up his name in just a moment. Uh, Fred, I can't remember Fred's last name. Fred uh, made a lot of money over here in the States in the ice cream business years mm-hmm. ago. He was the first person I ever heard say, um, if hard work and wealth show up at the same time in the same place, it's a coincidence, <laughs> not a cause effect relationship. <laughs> and, um, it is somewhat related. That that sounds like a it is the potential for a great aha moment. Mm. Uh, but it is very very practical. It's not you know it, this is not about you know some metaphysical tuning of our minds and suddenly oh money just comes flying in the door. But it's it's more of a practical analysis of why you get paid at all. Mm. Like what what is it we get paid for? And we ask that question. Okay, what what do you get paid for? Guy says, well, I get paid, um, you know, I get paid to do this for an hour. It's like, well, that may what that may be what it looks like, but what you're getting paid is the amount of value that you can produce in one hour for your employer. Yeah. And so we get paid for value. The only time anybody ever buys anything is because we want that thing more than we want the money in our pocket that it that it costs to have it. Mm-hmm. So when you understand that making money is all we're, all we're doing is we're exchanging our value for somebody else's currency. So when you step outside the, the box of thinking that, 
you know, you have to earn your money in the form of a wage or a salary, then you can kind of stand back and say, okay, well, how can I be of more value? Mm-hmm. Forget my boss, forget my job. Just what, what problems do I see that I know how to solve? Or what is, what's this, uh, you know, one of the things that Jessica and I love about coming to London is, you know, the constant every few hours we get to hear, mind the gap, mind the gap. <laughs> I love it because what it reminds me of is that anytime you can see a gap between what people have and what they need, there's an opportunity there. Yeah. And, I, and I'll give you a quick example. Um, several years ago, I was in a, I was in a situation where I noticed a lot of people doing the same work I was doing. They mm-hmm. needed, they needed a system to, to do a particular function and they didn't have one and they were either doing it manually by hand or they were just kind of cobbling together a bunch of different things and kind of that, you know, it, it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't right. So it, it wasn't it, a yeah. good situation. Yeah. So anyway, I called up, I, I asked a friend and I said, Hey, do you know a programmer? He said, yeah, I know a guy named Brian. And I said, well, you give me Brian's email address. And I emailed this guy named Brian and I said, Hey, I know you don't know me, but, uh, Gene, you and I have a mutual friend. His name's Gene. And he tells me that you might could, uh, help me. Is it, could you write a program that would do this? I don't want to get really technical. It was just a thing that needed to be done. And Brian comes back and says, yeah, yeah, I can, I can probably have that to you within a month. And here's what it'll cost. And needless to say, I couldn't, I couldn't afford it. I was making Mm -hmm. some money, but I couldn't afford what he was asking for. So I emailed him back and I said, well, how about this? How about you do it for free? (laughs) (laughs) How about if you'll do it for free, how about we come to an arrangement where you just make a percentage, Uh um, you know, of, of how much I sell this for. Cause my idea, Ozzy was if I could have a system that would solve that problem. I knew plenty of people who would pay a monthly subscription. You've got a market there already. So the idea there was if he picked up $5 or three or four bucks per subscription times, you know, a hundred or 200 people, then it might take him a little longer to get his money, but it's a win-win for both of us. Yeah. So long story short, and I'm, and I, I really will crunch this down. Long story short, um, 30 days later, I realized I have started a software company. I know nothing <laughs> at all about software. Um, I, I literally did nothing except I emailed a programmer and asked him to do something. And, and we both signed a piece of paper agreeing on how much money he would get. He did all of the work. Uh, when I say all of it, I mean, literally I did nothing. And then when it was ready, um, uh, I told a few people, and I was really happy about it. And we said, you know, it's $45 a month. And, and they were ecstatic. And they told a couple people. And I, I don't even think if I, I was, I was thinking about this story this morning. I don't think we even bought an ad. I don't recall us ever spending any money on advertising. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, a few people told a few people and then suddenly it just, it went nuts. And within about a year, it might've been about, it might've been under a year. I'm not sure. I would say 12 to 14 months. Um, we had between 2,500 and 3000 customers all paying $45 a month. Um, which I, you know, a little back of the napkin math here. Uh Um, 
you know, we were billing over a hundred thousand dollars a month. Fantastic. And oh. we had one, we had one employee. We had a guy named Andy who handled, um, customer support tickets. And, uh, Brian was making something like, I think he got like 15 grand a month. And we found out later, <laughs> we found out later that he was outsourcing too. So we were paying, <laughs> he was really, um, he was a clever fellow because we were paying him about 15 grand a month for this, for the programming. Yeah. And I think he had somebody, um, in the Philippines or Bangladesh or someone, somebody was doing it for him for like three grand. So when I found out about it, I was only angry for about a minute. And then I, I thought, well, good for you. Good for, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But, but I, yeah. and I didn't mean to go on yeah. about it, but, no, no, but there's good. an example where we made millions of dollars and it was literally the easiest. I don't even know if you'd call it work. I, I really just saw the gap, you know, yeah. mind the gap. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, it's not something you deliberately set out to do either, yeah. is it? I mean, it's like I didn't set out, because I don't know if you know, I've got a, um, uh, one of the ways I, I, I earn money is I've got an animation business. I do animated videos. Well, that brings part three to a close. I know you're not going to want to miss part four of my interview with the fantastic Tony Rush, because I've no need to tell you, he's giving some great value here that we can all use. So the best way of not missing that is to head over to iTunes, subscribe, and then you'll never miss another episode of the When's My Time podcast. In the meantime, I'll head off and edit part four, and uh, it will be uploaded shortly. Cheers now. Bye-bye.